Heavenly Father, as we come before your glorious throne of grace, we cry out with the words of David, search us and know our hearts, try us and know our ways, see if there be any evil way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. So as we open your word this evening, it is our prayer that God the Holy Spirit would take control of everything that is said and done. We recognize that apart from his illumination and guidance, uh, we cannot understand the book that we hold before us. So enlighten your word by your spirit and edify our souls. Strengthen each of us according to our needs in order that we may go forth into life with confidence and assurance that we walk with you, that we are under your protection, that we have your guidance, and that we can fulfill your will. To this end, we pray this evening as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So this issue was brought to me, and I just thought I would touch on it very, very quickly, uh, the issue of when did the church start? And apparently this came up in uh, one of the classes while we were away, uh, I think maybe arts class. I just want to share a couple of scriptures with you and just let the scripture speak uh, on its own, if you would. Uh, three passages. Let's open to Acts chapter 8. And believe it or not, this will fit in with our study this evening in Revelation. In Acts chapter 8, you know, we're always best when we can just let the Scripture speak. And one of the fundamental principles of Bible interpretation is that the Bible interprets itself. I just spoke with a gentleman this week, and he, uh, as I got to the issue of Scripture, he said, ah, oh, the Bible is a book that was just written by men, and everybody has a different interpretation, and no one can know what it really means. Um, that's really a tragic approach to the Word of God that lives and abides forever. But when we let the Scripture speak on its own, I think it's always the best thing. So here we are in Acts chapter 8, and it says that Saul was consenting to his death, referring, of course, to the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. Saul we know later in the 13th chapter of Acts, takes on his nomen, which is Paul. Remember that Paul was a Roman citizen. Romans had three names like we do. Believe it or not, it's not all that usual around the world to have a first, a middle, and a last name. With the Roman citizens, they had what they called a prinomen, that is the first name, a nomen, the name, and a cognomen. The cognomen was usually your tribe or clan or, you know, the group that you originated from. So here we have Saul, which is Hebrew, Shaul. Uh, it means mighty. His middle name would have been, if we had said it in Latin, the way he would have expressed it as a Roman citizen, Saulus Paulus Benjamitus. Saul, the Hebrew name, Paulus, Paul, the Greek name, his what we would call middle name, Benjamitus being his tribe. So here we have Saul, as he is known at the time, was consenting to his death, and at that time a great persecution rose against the church. Okay, just hang on to that. Against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. 
Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Believe it or not, this is the fourth and the fifth time the church is mentioned, the first being in Acts chapter 2, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So without commenting any further, we have two references here to the church. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And I think the argument that many people use, the word ecclesia is a word that can simply be used for an assembly. There's a general use and a technical use, or we could say a general use and a specific use. Many of the words that we read in our New Testament Bible are this way because we know that the kini or the Koine Greek came from the ancient Greek going all the way back to the time of Homer and beyond. And so... Some would argue, well, it just means that there was an assembly. Well, let's listen to what Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He gives us that little additional information. The church of God. Look at... And by the way, he would have to be referring to the incidents of Acts chapter 8 because what happened in Acts chapter 9? He became a believer, right? One more passage, Galatians chapter 1. Starting in verse 11, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. And he says he did this beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Um, an interesting sidelight in this is that Paul uses the phrase church of God eight times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, when he's speaking of the church and he wants to give it a designation more times than any other instead of just saying the church or identifying it as to its geographic location, the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, his overwhelming preference is to refer to the church as the church of God. There are eight times that he does this, and I'll leave it up to you to look those up sometime on your own. So I simply take Paul's word for it that the church was in existence before he became a believer. And that fits in with our study tonight because at the top of your page... I'm not sure what page your Revelation 6 starts on. Um, what is that page? Because I've run off Revelation 6 as a separate unit, so mine's page number 1. 21. 21, excellent. Possibly 20. 20, okay. So where we have the Daniel 9 reference. Why is this important? Daniel gave us a prophecy, and the prophecy was 
the history of the nation of Israel from his time forward. The reason this is important is because the strongest argument for the truth of Scripture, I mean, we take it for granted, it came from God, therefore it's inspired, correct? Mm -hmm. But the strongest evidence for someone who has a question as to whether it's valid or not is prophecy. Two-thirds of this book is prophecy. If the prophecies are not accurate, we can discount the book. On the other hand, if prophecies given hundreds, if not thousands of years before the event happens, and they're, they're not, you know, people say, well, uh, who's the guy that, uh, the prophet that everybody's wanting to refer to that talks about things in our time? Nostradamus. Nostradamus, Nostradamus gave prophecies. Yikes. <laughs> Nostradamus gave prophecies. Have you ever read his prophecies? On some day when the moon is full, you'll turn a corner and there will be a car in front of you. I mean, anybody could look at them and find a million places where they could be fulfilled. When the scripture gives a prophecy, take the first coming of Christ as an example. It tells us the time that he would be born, the time in history. It's one of the reasons why Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because he said, you did not know the time of your visitation, but you should have. That's the implied idea. You should have known that this was the time. Simeon knew that it was the time. Why was that? Simeon knew the prophecy of Daniel. Yeah. So when we look at the prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ, we find specifically the time of his coming, the place of his birth, the place of his refuge, going down to Egypt, the place where he would live when he came back, Nazareth, the beginning of his ministry under the introduction of John the baptizer. That comes up, I think, in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, the method of his ministry he will not quench a smoking flax nor break a bruised reed until he has brought justice to fulfillment. On and on and on, specific prophecies of time and place and manner that are all fulfilled perfectly. I think the guy's name was Steven Pinker. I don't know if you can remember. I may be uh, on another guy. I have so many names rolling around in my head. Sometimes I get them wrong, but I believe it was Steven Pinker that was... Uh, Phenomenal mathematician. And Stephen Pinker set out to disprove scripture. And he said, the only way that you can disprove the Bible is to disprove prophecy. If you can discredit prophecy, you can disprove the Bible. Well, he got to studying the prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And of course, we know there are over 330 of them. So he said, this is impossible for me to deal with all this number. I'm going to deal with only eight. <coughs> And I'm going to, to choose the eight that are the most specific. So he chose, as I said, the time of his birth, place of his birth, where he would grow up, things like that. Eight prophecies that he chose, and he set out with all of his great intellectual power to prove that Jesus did not really fulfill those prophecies. Well, as you may have suspected, Stephen Pinker became a believer. Yes. And he became a believer because he said the chance of these prophecies all coming together in the life of one person just by chance or by accident is one in 10 to the 17th power. 
another one in 10 with 17 zeros. Now, I'm sure that some of you that have really <clears throat> great mathematical skills can think of that and, and it just makes a whole lot of sense to you. When I read one in 10 to the 17th power, it means nothing to me. So fortunately, Steven Pinker explained to us what that meant. He said, let me give you an illustration to help you understand what I mean by the impossibility of this happening. If I were to cover the state of Texas a foot deep in silver dollars, and I marked one of those silver dollars and sent you into the state, and you were able to reach down and pick up that marked silver dollar, you would have fulfilled one in 10 to the 17th power. He became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So prophecy is very, very important. And in Daniel, and I'm not going to go through all this, I've, I've tried to lay it out for you. There's a lot more, of course, that can go into this. People often say, when we figure these out, why don't they work according to our calendar? Can anyone guess why if you take Daniel's prophecy and the command to rebuild Jerusalem was given in 445 B.C.? And from that time, his prophecy begins. There was 49 years that were spent in the rebuilding of the temple. And then it came up to the 483rd year with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, leaving us seven years to be fulfilled in the history of Israel. The reason that they don't work out according to our calendar is... We have a different calendar. We have 365 days a year, and they have 360. Their calendar was based on the moon. Ours is based on the sun. So there are people that are, again, much, you know, I do good if I can add two and two. But there are people that are very brilliant. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson, I think you can still get his books. Uh, if you get uh, Sir Robert Anderson, a guy from England years and years ago, probably back in the late 18, early 1900s. He has a book called The Coming Prince. Uh, and he goes through all of it, and he is so meticulous that he says that the 483rd year brought us right up to the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They believe April 30 uh, in 30 AD. I don't know if I'd want to nail it down that much. But the point is, 70 weeks... I know most of us can do this. 70 weeks, a week is seven. 70 times seven is? 430? No. Does anybody have 450? 490 years. Well, if we come to the time of the crucifixion of Christ at 483 years, we're missing seven years. And those seven years are yet to come, yes. and it's the period that we call the tribulation period. Based on this, when would you suggest that the age of Israel stopped? At the crucifixion. At the crucifixion. And what sign do we have? The cross. The torn veil. Once the veil ripped from top to bottom, that meant that all 
uh, temple worship was nullified and invalidated from that point forward. Just because the priest went back in and stitched it back up and kept on as if nothing happened. Can you imagine that? You know that the guy who claimed to be Messiah is crucified on the hill. The whole sky turns dark. The earth shakes. The rocks are being split in two. The veil rips from top to bottom and you wake up the next morning and you go, ah, well, let's get back to work. You know, I mean, it's really, really crazy. So, what comes in between? Here we are in the church age. Now, why is Revelation 6? And I would call Revelation 6 in many ways the most important passage in Revelation. Why is it so important? Because it tells us the things that are not coming someday. I think anyone with an eye to the events that are going on around the world would look at Revelation 6 and say, this is almost like the evening news, except that we all know the evening news doesn't tell you the truth anymore. Right? So we look at Revelation chapter 6. Okay? So, when we turn to Revelation chapter 6, we've seen the first three chapters of Revelation deal with the church. Remember that church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters. Then we see the church in heaven, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now the tribulation period begins. Oh, before we go into Revelation 6, turn with me to one more passage because I think it's very important, Matthew 24. I think we should slide this in with our study of Revelation chapter 6 because they match perfectly. Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. This is the temple that was soon to be destroyed. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now you have to realize this building was absolutely magnificent. It was 40 years in the process. When we go to Israel and you look at the Western Wall and you look at some of the other sides of what had been the temple, you can only imagine how magnificent a building that it must have been. And so as they're showing him the buildings of the temple, Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone should be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Bear in mind... He had just made the most awful condemnation found anywhere in the Bible on the nation of Israel in the 23rd chapter. Seven times in chapter 23, he pronounces woe on Israel. Now, if a man says woe to you, that's bad enough, depending on his ability to bring woe on you. When the God of creation says woe to you, you better believe that woe is coming. Seven times he pronounces woe on them and ends the section by saying, your house is left desolate. And of course, all of that played a part in the crucifixion and then the ending of the age of Israel. So Jesus is telling them, all of this is going to be destroyed. And they ask him when and how and what will be the sign of your coming. And I just want to begin 
in verse 9 because this is where he begins an outline for us. I believe verses 4 through 8, which talk about wars and rumors of wars, uh, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquakes in various places. I believe we're living in that time right now. It's called the birth pangs. And we see all of that going on around us. And it's preparing the way for more of the same, only on a larger scale. All these, he says, are the beginning of sorrows, and the word sorrows really means birth pangs. So in verse 9, then they will deliver you. Who is the you? I dried out my pen here. He's speaking here to Jews, and I would say specifically Jewish believers. Then they will deliver you up to, let's make an outline. Tribulation. Okay. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and deceive many, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Bear in mind, this verse has been so abused. This verse is never found but twice in the New Testament and only in a tribulation setting. People say, well, if you don't endure in your faith to the end, then you lose your salvation. Um, anybody here sure that you're going to, going to heaven on that ground? No. No. How many times we fail? People say, well, if you're enduring up to the very last point and then you lose faith or question God, you've lost your salvation. No, 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 no. In the tribulation period, he who endures to the end is going to be saved. Always remember the word saved is used four or five different ways in the New Testament. It can be used for healing. They use the word saved, literally means to deliver, sozo, same way we do. If a child ran out in the street and I ran out and grabbed it and pulled it away from a truck coming down the street, I just saved that child. Does that make me the Messiah? No. I just, I just saved the child from death. If I'm a doctor and I accurately figure out what's wrong with you and I give you the proper treatment, medicine, whatever, and a condition that otherwise was going to take your life is resolved, I just saved you. I saved your life. They use the word in the same way. So every time you see the word saved, ask yourself the question, what is the context and what is the person being saved from? Very, very important. James, for example, begins his epistle, which confuses many people with the words, Therefore, lay aside all wickedness and the overflow of evil and receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Is it true that receiving the word 
when you receive the gospel, saves your soul, doesn't it? But that's not what James is talking about. James is talking to people who are already believers. And he's saying, to you who are brethren and believers, I am imploring you to lay aside all wickedness and receive the word of God implanted in your soul. It's the Holy Spirit that does the planting, which is able to save your soul. Save your soul from what? Go through the book of James and ask you, how many things are there we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from doubting God during trials. Blessed is a man that endures temptation for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of glory. What if we don't endure our trials? No crown. Do we lose our salvation? Absolutely not. Chapter three, let not many of you become pastors or preachers because we shall receive the greater condemnation because if you cannot control the tongue, then it's an evidence that you have not reached spiritual maturity and the man who is able to control his tongue is a perfect man in every way, mature man in every way. Is there anyone in this room besides me that needs to be delivered from the abuse of my tongue? Mm -hmm. How many things we need to be delivered from? Chapter four, he says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Do they not come from your own lust, from your own desire to possess? Anybody here ever struggle with the desire for things or money or possessions? We all wrestle with these things. We need to be saved from these things. So I'm taking a lot of time that I need to move on. I hope you get the point. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, A, D, abomination of desolation. What is the abomination of desolation? Believe it or not, it comes up in the book of Daniel. And what is the abomination of desolation? It's when Antichrist walks into the temple in Jerusalem and proclaims himself to be God. Paul deals with it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that is the holy of holies in the temple, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Prescott flee to the mountains. In Prescott. Is that what your Bible says? No. Camp Verde. Camp Verde. <laughs> I actually had a group that tried to split my church and they were saying that the scripture says that we're to flee to the mountains. And this was the verse they used. They said, it says right here, and, and the evil is in the holy place. The holy place to them was the White House. I don't know how they got that. <laughs> Let us flee to the mountains. And I said, wait a minute. It says those who are in Judea. Oh, well, that's figurative. Okay. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Why? Because it's hard to run carrying a child. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. He's just given us an outline. The first three and a half years, tribulation. 
Second three and a half years, great tribulation. Okay? There will be great tribulation, he says, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Have any of you heard pastors, preachers, prophets saying that we're in the tribulation? I run across it all the time. There are books out on it. It just feels there, that way. Sorry? It just feels that way. Yeah, it feels that way for sure. Um, you know, we're, we're, in, we're having tribulation, but not the tribulation. It's going to be a whole lot worse. Verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. How is he using the word saved? Survive. No flesh would survive. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then if you just drop on down to verse 27 and 28, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. <clears throat> That's going to happen here. And you'll read about that in Revelation 19. Okay? So I just want to try to tie Daniel, Matthew in with what we're now going to look at. We can finally get to our text of Revelation chapter 6. Thank you, DJ. Revelation 6, and I'm really going to go through this quickly because I've already spent half my time. And I appreciate you bearing with me, but I do hope, you know, Scripture is always about context. And we have to keep things within their context. A text taken out of context is what? It's a pretext. It's a pretext. We want to be accurate. We want to be faithful. My greatest fear, I'll tell you this, is to misrepresent God's Word. I try to always stay open. If someone says, hey, I think you're wrong about this, let's sit down. Let's talk about it. I want you to show me. Let's, let's get into the Word. Because in honesty, none of us have all the answers. Amen. If we did, what would be the need to continue to study? Okay? So what we're going to see now, if I can clean up my mess here, is a very quick overview of the entire tribulation period. This is very Jewish. This is a very Hebrew way of doing things that John would say, before we go into detail, let's look at the big picture. I have found it very helpful, even in the study of Scripture, look at the big picture first. If you start trying to deal with the details, oftentimes you'll get off track. So the big picture comes first, and we're going to look at the big picture. Revelation 6, verse 1. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. Remember, in chapter 5, he was given the book with seven seals, and the seven seals written inside and out, and it tells you all this in your notes, is a sign of a title deed. It's his title deed to the earth. 
He is the only one who can open that title deed. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice like thunder, come and see. Some versions in the original language just have the word come. Come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So, horseman number one, the white horse... In the ancient world, when a general came to conquer a city or a land, he rode a white horse. It was the symbol of conquest. He has a bow, which in the ancient world was a symbol of long-range conquest. So here we have the white horse, long-range conquest... And we know who is going to seek to conquer and rule the whole world, and we call him Antichrist. Believe it or not, there are people who say that he's already here. You say, well, how would someone know if the Antichrist is here? Well, they don't call him the Antichrist. They call him Christ. Jewish rabbis say they're in touch with him. There are Jewish rabbis who say that he is already ruling the world. That he is the one who is imposing. Have you noticed in the last three years how all of the nations seem to have just fallen into lockstep with one another? And they all seem to be marching according to the same tune. The Jewish rabbis say he is already here and he is arranging the pieces, if you will, preparing the uh, playing board or the playing field for his ultimate conquest of the whole world. Whether that's true or not, who knows, but the white horse represents Antichrist. So in real life, he's going to come on the white horse. That's not like a figurative of speech. I'm sorry? It's not a figurative of speech. He's really going to come on the white horse. Uh, he, he may or he may not. Oh. It's, it's a symbol. Remember that Revelation is a book That signifies, and the key in signifies is sign, so it's a book of signs. John is the only one who really stresses the use of the word sign, which in the Greek is semion, and it refers to a physical event with a spiritual meaning. So in the Gospel of John, you have the eight signs beginning with the sign of the turning of water to wine, the eighth sign is the resurrection from the dead. And those signs were physical events. They actually happened, but they had much greater spiritual significance. So whether he's actually going to come on the white horse or whether that's simply a term of his conquest of the world could be either one. N neither would disqualify the other, so to speak. I was thinking with all of the gas shortages and, and them trying to do away with fossil fuels that they may be on horses in the future. Very possible. Very possible. Yeah. Be a great time for me, but I won't be here. I'll be gone. Let's look at the second seal in verse 3. 
When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see, and another horse, fiery red. So the red horse. And he tells us exactly what these are. I saw the fiery red horse went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. In contrast to the bow, which represented long-range conquest, the sword was close in battle. It was like hand-to-hand, face-to-face. The next step <coughs> is going to be anarchy around the world. So <coughs> Satan thinks that he brings his man on the scene, the Antichrist, and he's finally going to establish a kingdom without Christ. How long is it going to last? Very, very short time. Very short time. Just about the time he thinks he's established his world kingdom, there is going to be mass chaos and confusion and a breakdown of law and order and anarchy. Bear in mind as we read through these, what's going on in our world today? Verse 5 says, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he that sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not harm the oil and the wine. In your notes, and I'm not, I'm purposely not following my notes because if I do, I'm going to get bogged down and take too much time. Uh, historically, during the reign of Domitian, there was a famine that broke out where people, the poor people, were starving for something like wheat or barley. Barley was the cheaper, the more uh, lower class food, if you will. Uh, so for a denarius, which is a full day's wage, you guys imagine going to work, you work for a full day, you get paid for that day, you have enough to buy enough wheat for you for that day. Imagine a day's wage for one meal. Have you noticed what's going on in the shipping mm -hmm. department of the world? And have you noticed the predictions? They're already trying to set the stage for us. Eggs are going to be almost impossible to get. Milk is going to be almost impossible to get. One guy estimated that a pound of hamburger will sell for $50. These are people that know far more about this than I do as far as the supply chain and the economy, and so on and so forth. The reason I emphasize this is because what we're reading about is tomorrow's news. Mm -hmm. And why is that important? It tells us how close we are mm -hmm. to the coming of Christ for his church. Because what happens before the tribulation begins? The rapture of the church. Christ will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rise first, we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Now, when you say that to a lot of people, particularly people that want to argue against the Bible, they say, well, why should Christians get to escape? You know what my answer is? Christians never have escaped. 
We have been persecuted, hounded, burned at the stake, beheaded, slaughtered, butchered, starved to death, imprisoned for 2,000 years. Just because you and I happen to live in a time when it hasn't touched us directly doesn't erase the story of the suffering of the church for 2,000 years. So it's not that we're escaping and getting a free ride out of difficulty. It's that we have fulfilled our part and in order for God's plan of the ages to continue to roll on, the church has to be removed. All right, so three quarts of barley for a denarius. You could get for a, for a day's wage, you could get three quarts of barley. So if you have a man, his wife, and a child, and you buy the really cheap food, you could get enough to survive for husband and wife and child. Do not hurt the oil and the wine. And I started to tell you during the reign of Domitian in that famine, there were people, the poor people were starving to death while the rich people were living in luxury. So it seemed like that could happen in our time. Do not hurt the oil and the wine. And during the famine in the days, Domitian was going to force the vineyard growers to start planting wheat and barley so that they could feed more people. And there was such a resistance and riot among the vine growers and the vineyard owners that he said, no, just forget it, uh, we'll, we'll let it go. And so in one house, you might have a guy dining on steak and drinking a glass of wine. And in the house next to him, you have a family of three starving to death. We're moving very rapidly to these times. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come and see. And I looked, behold, a pale horse. Uh, the word pale here actually means kind of a ghastly green. The name of him that sat on it was death and Hades followed with him. I don't know if Hades is riding double on the horse or has another horse, but they're moving together. Power was given to them over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So, the fourth seal is pale horse. Death by multiple means. I don't know if any of you have heard of Michael Yon. Michael Yon is the most famous, most experienced war correspondent of our time. Uh, he has been in every battle and every major event going on around the world for the last couple of decades at least. Former Special Forces soldier, very highly trained, very astute. Um, and he was talking recently about these very things and he he said, I thought that I coined a phrase, pan-fam war, pan-fam war. And the guy said, what's that? And he said, pandemic, famine, and war. He said, once you get one, you'll have the other two. You may start with famine, you're going to end up with pandemic and war. You may start with a pandemic, you're going to end up with famine and war. You may start with a war, you'll end up with a pandemic and famine. He said, these three always come together. 
And he said, I have seen it in Africa, I've seen it in China, I've seen it in India. He's been in over 90 countries, I think. And he said, I never thought that I would be telling people it's coming to America. This is what's coming to the United States. Now, I'm not saying all this to scare you because when Jesus told his disciples about all this, what was the very first thing he told them? See that you be not afraid. See that you're not afraid. Why? Number one, because we know we have eternal life. That's quite a great comfort no matter what you face. Number two, we also know that we are under divine protection. Nothing can touch us but by God's permission. Number three, we have a whole history of 2,000 years of people who have gone through all of these kind of things and have come through valiantly and victoriously. So we have many, many reasons to have comfort and assurance, but we do need to face facts and we need to see the world as it really is. So in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So now we come to martyrs. These will be believing people in the tribulation. You stop and think about it. The moment the rapture takes place, there's not a believer left on the earth. Think how strange that is. Not a believer. Why? Because all believers have been taken up to join the Lord. Then we have, and we'll see this in the next chapter, in chapter 7, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed by God to go out into the world and do the work that we have been doing. And they're going to do a very good job of it. Because the church has been here for 2,000 years and we still haven't reached the whole world. Do you realize that? How many countries, how many tongues have never heard the gospel message? They're going to evangelize the entire world in seven years. As much as you've traveled and been around the whole world, like you, you can really say that there are people out there that do not know about Jesus. You're not going to believe this. We had a youth camp in Arkansas, and we had a kid come to that youth camp, and when we talked about Jesus Christ, they had never heard the name. That's what just blows they, me away. They had I no idea who he was. Such a free place. Yeah. And TV, in, in America. Yeah. yeah. They had never heard the name. So, okay. yeah, there are many places around the world that are yet unreached. All right, so the martyrs are crying with a loud voice in verse 10 saying, How long, O Lord? You ever cry this prayer? Yeah. Lord, how long? How long? By the way, I don't know about you, but I pray every single day for Christ to return. You know, of course, that the book of Revelation ends with a prayer. Remember the prayer? Even so, come Lord Jesus. I pray that prayer every day in one form or another. Do you know why? Because I love all of you and I know what's coming. And I love my children and my grandchildren and I know what's coming. And I don't know how bad it's going to have to get before Christ comes and calls us to himself, but I pray for it every single day. How long, O Lord, they cry, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now you might say, well, this doesn't seem like a very Christian attitude. They got beheaded, and here they are praying that God will judge the people who beheaded them. But we have to realize they're in heaven. 
right? What do we have when we're in heaven? Well, a better question, what do we don't have? We no longer have a sin nature. You guys won't even recognize me. I'll come down the street and you'll look at me and see this little 90-pound weakling. Who's that? Oh, that's Gene without his sin nature, right? No sin nature. It'll be amazing. So they're not crying out here out of vindictiveness. They're crying out out of a mind that has, is perfectly aligned now with the plan and the purpose of God. There is a time when justice must be done. And this is what they're asking for. Verse 11 says that a white robe, the symbol of purity, particularly of the uh, faithfulness of their lives, was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. So the next time you're asking God how long, just say, I need to rest a little longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Remember in the tribulation period, what is the price of faith in Christ? Execution. By the way, does that motivate you and I to be warning people about what's coming? Sure. Certainly does me. We have an opportunity right now to present the gospel to people, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive the free gift of eternal life and escape all of this. You can say, well, if they don't believe now, maybe they'll believe later. Maybe so, at the price of their life. Right? Verse 12 then brings us to the sixth seal. And he looked and he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. Remember, we read this in Matthew 24. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. The sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Let's just call the sixth seal... Natural upheaval. We could say disturbance. Whatever word we want to use, natural upheaval. Verse 15. Now, where, where are we at this point in our tribulation scenario? We're still in the tribulation. Sorry? First three and a half. Well, we've already had Antichrist come on the scene. Now we have the natural disasters. Go back to Matthew 24. What will be the sign of your coming? He has led us from the beginning of the tribulation through the abomination of desolation right up to the end when Christ is going to come back. In other words, we have an overview of the whole tribulation period. Starting in chapter 7, he's going to start reducing it down in smaller sections. So the seven seals are like the seven-year tribulation. Well, here's the interesting thing. There are seven seals. So when you get to the seventh, which doesn't come up for a while, because starting in chapter 7, we have an interlude. There are three interludes in the book of Revelation that are very important. But when the seventh one happens, what begins? Anyone remember? What? Seven trumpets. So we've done seven seals. We got through those. They gave us an overview. Now we're going to have seven trumpets. 
And when the seventh trumpet sounds, what happens? Seven vials or seven bowls. So the seventh one always opens the door to the next set of seven. He's giving us an overview and then he's going to go sequentially through the tribulation period. Make any sense? Are you thoroughly confused? Yeah, it's okay. Though. Read your notes. They're, they're hiding up in Prescott right now. They're getting back back They're going to hide in the capes. Who's hiding? I don't know who's hiding, but it's talking to kings. And the kings keep on going number 15. <laughs> okay. They're hiding in the capes. <clears throat> among the rocks. Okay, verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free, every unbelieving human being is hiding themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. This is speaking of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't this amazing? We will read, or you'll read as you go through Revelation, time and time again, as God pours out his wrath on the earth, you will read this statement, and yet for all that, they would not repent of their sorceries and their evils and so on and so forth. Even with these judgments, even when they stand shaking their fist at the sky saying, we hate God for what he's doing on this earth. They will not repent because of the hardness of their heart. Those who would not pray to God will pray to the mountains. Those who would not accept free salvation by grace through faith will cry out to the mountains to save them from the Savior. How strange is that? How hard can the human heart be? And yet I think as you and I look at the landscape, do you remember what America used to be? Those of you that can go back a few decades, do you remember how your school used to begin the day with a pledge of allegiance and a prayer and a scripture reading? Ours did. Mm -hmm. Pledge of allegiance and a prayer and a scripture reading. Look where we are now. If you even suggest that such a thing should be done in a school, you are declared an extremist and a terrorist. Because a lot of parents who have fought against what is being pushed on their kids are being called terrorists, extremists. Homeschoolers. Whatever. Homeschoolers. Oh, yeah. In Utah, on the high echelon of the people running that state, they're proposing that illegal, put the Bible illegal in all schools. To make the Bible illegal? Make the Bible illegal in all schools. Do any of you remember when they outlawed prayer in school in 1963? Yeah. You know, I never prayed openly in school until then. And they outlawed prayer in school, so I started praying at lunchtime because they told me I couldn't. Mm -hmm. 
And there were a few other believers that did the same thing. And they said, you can't have Bible study in school. So some of us started carrying our Bible. And we started witnessing to other kids that were in our school. And yet today, this is considered a hate document. And everything that is hate is supported, encouraged, and financed. I don't know if you're aware, but your tax dollars, your tax dollars that you work hard for are funneled to terrorist organizations in this country. I'm not going to name them because if I name them, when they try to post this, they'll kick it off the internet. But you know what I'm talking about. Michael Yon, the guy that I mentioned, has said that crossing our southern border, there are tens of thousands of Russian and Chinese fighting age males. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands what? Russian and Chinese fighting age males. He says, I have been in the military for years. I've worked with the military all my life. He said, when I look and I see a fighting man, I know a fighting man. He said, these are fighting, trained people being funneled into our country. Again, not to panic. God's in control. But if I were to just give you my puny little pea-brained suggestion of what is to come, give it to us. the stage is being set. The stage is being set. Been conditioned a long time. It's, all of this has been building since, you know, since the Tower of Babel. So, fear not, only believe. That was Jesus' solution to his disciples again and again. Fear not. You say, how can I not fear? Believe. Mm-hmm. Faith conquers fear. Fear is the tool of the devil. When you face fear, you know what it does? It runs away. So let's face our fears, but let's make sure we face our fears with faith. We take this book and the truth of it, and however many different ideas people can come up with on the revelation, let's boil the whole book down to one thing. The world is going to get worse and worse until Christ returns. What is our outlook, the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Christ is coming again. And we are to live our lives looking for that and living for that. When we have that faith, as David said, the Lord is my helper, whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? That's the idea that we really want to develop. So... I know it was kind of a very rapid overview, but as I said, you got a lot of notes there. Go through them. Uh, if if you come up with questions, I hate to say it, we're probably not going to be back for a while, are we? Oh, we could write it down. We go to Texas next week, and I'm just going. We'll be back until May 10th. May 10th. But in, in Pennsylvania conference, he's teaching what happens after the rapture. So those classes will be on the website probably around April 18th or 20th. Somewhere. 
Yeah, they, they've asked me to start with the rapture of the church and then just work forward. What's going to happen all the way to the end. So it's... And so what, where is that? Like what um, chapters are you going to teach there? Uh, it won't be out of Revelation. Oh, okay. I'll touch on Revelation. But we'll be dealing, we'll be dealing with 1 Thessalonians 4 with the rapture. Uh, I'll bring in other passages. I'm sure you've all heard people say the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. Yeah, that's what I always say not for me. Right. You're waiting. Not for me. <laughs> no, it just says he's going to come that fast, right? That's, that's referring to his second coming. Oh. Not the rapture. See, that's where I'm so confused. It, somebody else just said that too. Like, so he doesn't come. Um, is he really going to come to us on a white horse with the tattoo on his leg or something that says? No, he's going to come on the really? clouds and call us. Let's just do a very quick picture. I gotta know. We're in no hurry. You're okay. It's, it's a good question, and it is important to get it clear. All right, so here is time. Eternity past, eternity future. The cross divides human history. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant. After Christ ascended, the Bible says he was seated at the Father's right hand, right hand far above all power and authority. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts chapter 2 to inaugurate the church age. We are somewhere here. The next event on the calendar, the Lord descends from heaven and we ascend to meet him. 1 Thessalonians 4. Okay, starting in verse 13. This we refer to as the rapture of the church. Now, people are always quick to tell you the word rapture is not found in the Bible, neither is Trinity. Doesn't mean that it's not taught. What they don't know is that the English phrase, we shall be caught up to meet him in the air, the Greek verb is harpazo. Harpazo means to snatch out of danger. The first translation from the Greek was into the Latin, and the Latin word is apere, from which we get. Rapture it means the same thing, to snatch, to seize, to take away. Then we have the tribulation period. Then we have the second coming to earth. This is where his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. Here he doesn't come to earth, we meet him in the air. In a moment of time, could happen tonight, the trumpet sounds, we hear the shout, we're gone. Tribulation begins. Okay. When the tribulation is over, because the tribulation is the outpouring of the wrath of God on a world that has gone totally evil, then he comes, Revelation 19, and the armies in heaven come with him on white horses. That's you and I. Okay. And they're going to have riding classes in between. <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be ready. So that's the difference. The rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Okay. 
So I'm going to be, I'm not really going to be with the second coming, but I'm going to be with the second coming because I'm going to come down on the horses. With him. With him. Yes. Okay. And then we rebuild Jerusalem and the earth. <clears throat> he destroys all of his enemies and he establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. Called the millennium, which is why Peter says, mockers are going to come, scoffers are going to come, saying, where is the hope of his coming? Since the beginning of the world, things continue as they always have. He says, no, not so. Don't forget the flood, number one. That was a divine intervention. And there's going to be a second divine intervention by fire. But he said, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So if you ever wonder, why is he delaying? People are being saved. That's important. And then he'll establish his kingdom for a thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, believe it or not, if you want to see how hard-hearted we can be, with a thousand years of Christ being visible, a thousand years of absolute perfect justice on this earth, a thousand years of blessing on this world like it has never seen, there will be a revolt against his authority and that revolt will be put down and then he will create a new heaven and a new earth. But nowhere are we who love him now are ever going to revolt. No. Because we have... Yeah, these are unbelievers. These are people who have rejected him. Now our soul is secure. Remember this. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, God created in you a new creature. That means there is something in you that was created by the hand of God that is entirely new and it's holy. Paul says in Ephesians that it was created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Different different than the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit dwells there. That's his home. He can only dwell in a perfect environment. So in that newly created holy creature, the Holy Spirit dwells. Okay. Which is why John tells us that which is born of God cannot sin. That's a little confusing, isn't it? Because I still sin. I don't know about you guys. Maybe none of you ever sin. But there's that peace in you that kind of knows. The, the, the great thing for us to understand is when I sin, that new creature hasn't sinned because it's holy. Okay. It's, it's flawless. Okay. Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 11, the things that I do with... My flesh, I serve the law of the flesh, but with my mind, which is really talking about this new creature, I serve the law of God. And that's secure. Okay, yeah. When the Bible talks about us being sealed by the Holy Spirit, that seal, we say signed, sealed, and delivered. None of us are going to fail to get to our ultimate destination. Okay. All right. Can I ask a question? Yes. Nope. We're open for questions. Do you have questions too? Two warnings I need I read just recently that you need to know. On the package of nuts, uh-huh. because of so many people allergic, it says contain nuts. So pay attention to the warning. Yeah. And the second warning is don't stop the chainsaw blade with your hand. That's a good idea. It must have happened because it was written. Yeah. I read this recently. Oh, my God. Yeah. Two warnings I thought you needed to know. Well, I appreciate that because I might try to stop my chainsaw with my hand. <laughs> I yes. laughed. In 
Second Thessalonians, when it talks oh, about man. that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. Great question. Which day? Who's he talking to? And which to? falling away? And who's he talking to? Very important. You want to look at it real quick? Second Thessalonians 2. This is another thing that people get really confused about. Okay, so it's very important that we listen carefully to what he's saying. Now, brethren, who's he talking to? Believers, right? Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Is he talking about the second coming or the rapture? Talking about the rapture, which he already taught him about in the first Thessalonian book. <coughs> we ask you, literally it says we, we urge you or we plead with you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or word or by letter as if from us. The point being there were people in Paul's time who were presenting themselves as apostles and they were not. And they were preaching false messages. So he said you might get a spirit, could be a prophecy, a word or a letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. How many of you have day of Christ in that verse? Who has day of Day of the Lord. Okay, so some of you have day of the Lord and some of you have day of Christ. Why is that? There are two main channels of Greek texts that have come down to us. One is what's called the majority text. That is the overwhelming majority of the Greek manuscripts. The others are the very most ancient, the earliest manuscripts. Some theologians say, well, the oldest ones have got to be the more accurate. Others say, no, the majority have to be the most accurate. And they fight and squabble and so on and so forth. So which of the manuscripts do we follow? In this text, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why? Because if we take the reading, which is in the later, the majority text, if we take the reading, the day of Christ, what would that mean? That would refer to this. In which case, Paul is saying, if someone comes and tells you that this has already happened, don't panic. Don't be troubled. On the other hand, if we take the Older manuscripts that say the day of the Lord, which I'm inclined to lean toward, but as I say in this passage, it really doesn't matter because what would that mean? That would mean that this day has come. Which day? I didn't see what you did. Yeah, because you're on. Tribulation. Okay. All right? Oh, gotcha. The point being, if someone came to you and said the rapture's already happened, where would that put you? In heaven. It would put you in the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation. Day of the Lord is an Old Testament term for the tribulation, right? So in either case, whichever one of them that you want to take, you're here. If the day of Christ, the rapture of the church has happened, you're here. I would be troubled. 
If the day of the Lord has come, where are you? You're here. So there were false teachers that were apparently saying, like people that we have today, saying we're already in the tribulation. Well, if we are, then what didn't happen? The rapture of the church. The same problem they were facing back then is exactly one that we face today. Does that make sense to everybody? So he's, he's encouraging them. And then he says something, and this trips up a lot of people, and I hope it doesn't throw a stumbling block in your path, but verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. What is the falling away? Everyone says, well, it means that everyone's gone into apostasy. The word that's used here is apostasy. Unfortunately, when we think apostasy, we think of falling away from the faith, don't we? But this word apostasia, which is used 15 times in the New Testament, is the majority of the times translated departure. And again, we have to read the context to find out departure from what? Remember when it was said that Paul taught people to depart from Moses? This is the word that was used. But in the context, it says depart from Moses so we know what he was calling, causing them or what they were causing them to depart from. Why do I tell you all this? And I hope I'm not making it more difficult. In this text, it has the definite article in front of it. It's very important. An anarthrous word, non-article word, is a departure. Definite article is the departure. We have to then ask ourselves the question, what departure is he talking about? He's talking about the rapture of the church. Does that make sense? That day, the tribulation, cannot come. There have been apostasies all through history. But the departure is the big one. And another thing about the use of the definite article is it oftentimes refers to something previously referred to in the text. And what's previously referred to is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Amen. So I take the falling away not to be falling away, but the rapture of the church, the departure of the church. And then what happens next? The man of sin is revealed. Here comes the guy on the white horse, which we just studied about. The son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or is worshipped as God so that he sits as God in the temple of God. We just read about that, didn't we? Abomination of desolation. Showing himself that he is God. Verse 5, do you not remember? Don't you remember reading 1 Thessalonians? I told you this stuff. So he's referring back to what he'd already taught. Question. You may not know because scripture doesn't really tell us. And I know that the term like a thief in the night is, is a Jewish term that they would all un, unprepared or surprised. Mm -hmm. But because 
half the globe is day and half the globe is night. And I know we're changed in the twinkling of an eye, but I just don't see how non-believers are not going to see this. Of course, everything's possible. No, they'll will will disappear in the in the blink of an eye. However, referring to what you said, turn back to First Thessalonians five. Verse 1 says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. What's the day of the Lord? Tribulation period. It's going to come as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they, notice not you, they will not escape. Verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So that's why when people say the Lord's coming as a thief in the night, I always say not for me. Well, that goes back to the, uh, the parable of the wedding supper with the, the virgins. The wicks. Yeah. yeah. The ones that were watching weren't taken mm -hmm. by surprise. Right. They saw right. him coming plain as right. day. It was the ones that were out of oil. Out of oil. Yeah. yeah. They were the ones that were shocked and appalled. And, yeah. 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 Okay. okay. So trim your wicks. Trim your wicks. Be ready. I'm going to go get some wicks. <laughs> Be ready. Let's pray and thank you for all of your interest. I appreciate the questions. I hope my answers don't confuse you more. I hope it explains things for you. Father, we are so thankful for your word because it gives us constant light. And I thank you, Father, for each and every one here this evening. If only we could see one another as you see us, we would realize that we are in the presence of men and women who are glorious beyond our ability to comprehend. One day we're going to shed this weak and frail physical body, and one day that new creature which you created and that glorious being that has developed through spiritual growth and insight and understanding of your word is going to step forth we're going to see each other as we really are. As John tells us, even concerning our resurrected Lord, we do not know what we shall be, but we do know that when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. What a glorious hope we have, and I pray that you will always cause us to rise above the doom and the gloom and the doubt and the fear of our time and just always continue to rejoice in the blessings and the assurance and the hope that we have in Christ, all because he paid the price. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt in order to set us free and to bring us into your family. And for this, we will be eternally grateful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.